Heavenly Father, we're excited, Father, to see this church growing, not only in numbers, Father, but more importantly, in spirit and in truth. I thank you for the energy and the commitment and the involvement of so many to take us from nothing to where we are by your grace and by the leading of your spirit. Thank you, Father, that you gave us this blessing. Thank you, Father, that you give us the word by which we do all these things. You didn't have to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to condescend to enter into humanity, but you did these things, Father, for you loved us before we knew you. And we thank you for that blessing. But, Father, where would we be if we take what you've given and do nothing with it? How will we please you if we ignore the most precious thing you have to offer? That is your word. And in flesh, your son. So we ask, Father, first that we would not ignore the grace you've given us in the face of your son, Jesus, that we would accept him by faith. And that secondly, Father, having known him by faith, we would obey him with our lives. And that we would hear and do what you tell us in your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you scan down chapter 7 of Matthew, you'd notice pretty quickly there are a number of iconic sayings in this one chapter of Scripture. Phrases like, walking the straight and narrow, or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do you know Jesus invented that saying? Right here in chapter 7. Or, you would know a tree by its fruit, or a house built on sand. All of these sayings are found here in chapter 7. And last week we looked at another frequently quoted phrase, probably the most quoted one in this chapter, maybe even the most quoted one in the whole Bible. The phrase last week was, do not judge. Jesus said to his followers that we're not to put ourselves in the place of God, judging each other's righteousness. And we covered this, as you remember, last week. And here's what we learned last week. We learned that judging in that way was wrong because everyone in here, all Christians in here, are equally righteous before God, and at the same time, we are equally sinful to each other. We're all on the same playing field here. We are all equally righteous by faith in Jesus Christ because what we've all received is exactly the same thing. Christ's righteousness credited to us. Our heavenly accounts all say fully righteous before God because of our faith. And therefore, no one in here is any more righteous than anyone else in the body of Christ, not in eternal terms. And then secondly, all Christians are equally sinful. In our own ways, we're all equally sinful. You and I occupy physical bodies that are 100% sinful. And that means every day of our lives, we commit all manner of sin in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Now, one of us may commit some different sins from another of us, or one of us may commit a bit more on a given day than another one. But those are rounding differences. Those are meaningless distinctions Because only one sin is enough to put anyone in hell. And that means all of us needed the same amount of grace. It doesn't really matter on any given day who happened to have the better day from another. Not on this issue of righteousness. And therefore, glory be to God that he reconciled us to God through Christ, not taking into account our sin, but putting our penalty on Jesus Christ so that we wouldn't be condemned. That's everyone in here who by faith has trusted in Jesus Christ. All right, so there's no room for judging. If you did that, if you judge one another according to who you think is better than another, the only thing you're accomplishing in that is undermining unity. That's it. 
And so Jesus said last week, rather than being preoccupied with each other's sins in that way, he says, why don't you spend time contending with your own sin first? That is the better use of time. And then he goes on to say, by modeling obedience in your own life, then you're going to have the potential to help other people because through that example, you give them something to look up to as they wrestle with sin. You can be a source of encouragement. You can be more compassionate to them. You can have better insight. You can inspire them. That was the solution. So in short, we learned, do not judge one another, set examples for one another. As we looked at that teaching last week, I said that this whole chapter is dedicated to teaching how you live out your righteousness while in a world of unrighteousness. Remember earlier, Jesus told us we have to be salt and light in this world. But now what he's explaining to his disciples is, guess what? The world ain't interested in that. The world is not interested in your light, not before they know it to be true. Scripture says the world is filled with men and women and even with spiritual forces, demonic forces that are opposed to the cause of righteousness. The world isn't just disinterested in the gospel. The world is offended by the gospel, according to Scripture. And the reason they're offended is because it convicts them of their sin and in the course of that conviction, leads them to have hatred against the gospel. That's the starting position for every heart. John says it this way. Actually, Jesus says this, quoted in John, John 3.19. This is the judgment of God, that the light, meaning Jesus, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Now, why would you love darkness more than light? He explains. He says, because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to be exposed. And then he says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That is the starting point of the human heart. By, by nature, the way we're born, we are opposed to the gospel because it exposes us. And so Jesus wants you and I, the disciples, the believer, to be discerning as we go about the mission of the church, trying to reach these very people. And the first thing you need to understand is that there are going to be attacks against the church that the enemy and the world will bring, and those attacks will start at the unity of the body. That's why we don't judge one another, because we're playing into the enemy's hands. We're just making it that much easier for him to get what he wants to weaken the church. The enemy did that very successfully in Israel's history, made them judge one another, weakened them, and Jesus said we don't follow that path. Which brings us now to his second point of preparation, the second thing he wants us to be aware of as we prepare to show our righteousness in a world that loves unrighteousness. And he's going to say something here that's not what you think he's saying. And may I submit to you, he's saying something you may never have heard someone explain to you before. And let me show you. Verse 6. He says, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, there you go. That's the second point of advice. Now, obviously, that's another often quoted phrase of Jesus. Everyone in here, I'm assuming, has heard, don't throw pearls before swine at some point. And I'm also guessing most of you have heard it out of context. Only Matthew's gospel records this saying of Jesus. The other three gospel writers don't record it. And perhaps that explains why it's so often misquoted. It's easy To hear this phrase, throwing pearls before swine, it's easy to hear that phrase 
uh, misinterpreted in a certain way. And here's the way it's often misinterpreted. And maybe you've heard this. It was interpreted to mean Jesus is warning us not to share the gospel with those who would reject it. Or some variation on that idea, right? The interpretation would say something to the effect that we shouldn't offer the gospel to those who won't receive it and that if we try too hard to present the gospel to that person, we risk shaming Christ or uh, shaming the gospel itself. And so if an unbeliever rejects our message, move on, don't throw your pearls before that swine any longer, so on and so on. Something to that Effect. Now, I could take a poll in here, I won't, but I'm guessing most of you have heard something to that effect when you have been taught on that verse. Now, that may seem sensible, but there are a lot of things wrong with that interpretation. So I think it's a, worth a moment or two here tonight for me to show you why that's true, why it's wrong, before I tell you what it actually says. First, I want you to notice the context of this illustration. What Jesus says here in verse 6 comes immediately after him talking to believers about not judging one another in the church, right? And then if you were to glance at the next verse, what we just read comes immediately before a teaching on trusting God to do what's best for us when we seek his help. All right, now, Jesus isn't just randomly throwing out bits of wisdom here. There is a narrative here, and there's a, a continuous line of thought developing here. So it's incumbent upon us to understand that line of thought before we guess at what one verse in the middle of it is saying. Wouldn't you agree? Furthermore, notice in verse 12, jump down just a little further. Notice in verse 12, Jesus gives us something we call the golden rule. But if you read it in context, it's a summary of the prior 11 verses. It's him summarizing, in effect, what he's just been saying up to that point. And the summary says, treat everyone the same way you want to be treated. That is to say, don't judge others. You wouldn't want to be judged. And trust God to give each person what is best for them. You don't need to be a busybody about it. And treat others the way you want to be treated. I mean, it's a continuous line of analysis up till verse 12. So if you were to insert in the middle of that passage in verse 6, the interpretation that, oh, you ought not share the gospel with those who resist it. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't fit anywhere in this context. In fact, let me ask you, is that treating other people the way you want to be treated? If you reject the gospel, you want someone to give up on you? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. And then secondly, that interpretation doesn't even fit with the details of the illustration itself. If you look at it carefully, notice in the illustration, Jesus says, don't throw pearls to swine. He did not say, stop giving pearls to them after they reject the first set. He's not talking about withdrawing your pearls if they don't accept them the first time. He says, never offer holy things to dogs. Not even in the first case, right? Now, elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus does tell his disciples in the gospel that if your gospel message is soundly rejected, you should move on. That is a principle. I'm not saying it's not a principle. I'm just saying that's not what he's talking about here. Where do you actually find that principle? It's in Luke 9, verse 5. As he sends his disciples out, Jesus says, And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. All right, but notice the difference between what he says in Luke and what he's saying here in Matthew. In Luke 9, Jesus was explaining to his disciples what you do after your offer of the gospel, your presentation of the gospel, has already been rejected. Then you leave. Then you shake the dust off and you move on. 
But in Matthew 7, where we are now, Jesus said, never give holy things to dogs. Not even the first time. It's a different situation. He's making a different point here than he is in Luke 9. And then, moreover, how could you and I know who's going to reject the gospel before we give them the gospel? That doesn't even make sense in itself, right? You have to throw your pearls to swine, so to speak, before you know what the swine is going to do with it, right? Before you know they're not going to accept it. So it's only after they've rejected it that you would say, oh, they're not going to take it right now. And then lastly, and most importantly, interpreting Matthew 7, 6 to mean that we shouldn't offer the gospel to those who reject it runs contrary to the entire Bible, if you think about it for a moment. The Bible says everyone is opposed to the gospel. Everyone is opposed to the gospel. Oh, until they receive it. And then by the power of God, they receive something that prior to that moment, they weren't willing to receive. There is no one who ever wanted to hear our message. It's only those who, by the power of God, receive it that anyone gets saved. So if you and I went around, based on Matthew verse 6 in this chapter, saying to ourselves, can't give the gospel to someone unless they're willing to receive it, guess how many people you'd share it with? Zero. That is to say, no one looks like they're going to receive it until they do. The Bible commands us to present the gospel to everyone indiscriminately. And you get that from Luke 8 in the parable of the sower and the seed, remember? You throw the seed everywhere. The word of God goes everywhere indiscriminately. It falls on hard soil, falls on rocky soil, falls on good soil. We don't know. It's going to fall where it falls. Some respond, some don't. But the point is we aren't picking out which soils get the seed in advance, are we? So the whole teaching of Scripture it runs contrary to thinking that what Jesus just asked of us is to be selective in our approach to sharing the gospel. God forbid we should give it to someone who may not like it. That makes no sense. And then let me add a footnote. If that's what you think Matthew 7, 6 says, guess who disobeyed his own words? Jesus routinely offered the kingdom to people who soundly opposed him and rejected it. In fact, they hated it so much they killed him for it. So we clearly cannot conclude that Jesus is asking us not to offer the gospel to people who would reject it. He must be talking about something else. The context of this passage, the details of the illustration, the text of Scripture overall, Jesus' own behavior, they all argue for a different interpretation. So, what are the holy things that we are not supposed to offer? And who are these dogs and swine, so to speak, who are rejecting it? Well, that's all I have for tonight. Uh, well, oh, sorry. <laughs> Let's begin with a basic observation. Let's just go back to the beginning. Jesus says, don't give holy things to dogs. Now, on the one hand, you have holy things. Holy things are precious. They're pure. They're undefiled. Uh, they're worthy of honor. And then, on the other hand, you have dogs in this analogy, in this illustration, and they sit at the other end of the spectrum. Now, today, you and I have a different view of dogs generally. You know, we typically think of them as cute, domesticated little pets, except for poodles, which are justifiably detestable by all. But <laughs> in Israel, though, in this time, dogs were not pets. They were wild animals. They were unclean under the law. They were dangerous. They were despised. They were the most detestable thing imaginable in that culture. That's why Jews called Gentiles dogs. That was literally the lowest insult they could offer. So that gives you an indication of how far apart holy is from dogs in this illustration. Jesus says, you don't take things that are holy, precious things, worthy of honor, and assign them to violent beasts 
and brutes that would just destroy them and dishonor them if you gave them to them. And it's self-evidently true. Then he expands on the idea with a second illustration using pearls and swine, right? He says pearls shouldn't go to swine. Now here again, pearls are valuable. They are precious things and they have another quality to them. They have the potential to make anyone who wears them more beautiful. And then on the other hand, pigs. Now pigs were the most unclean animal in Jewish culture. And like dogs, they were also wild animals. I mean, Jews didn't cultivate them. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. So they went wild and they were dangerous. Uh, anyone who's hunted hog here in Texas knows that uh, a wild hog that's, that's upset at you is a very dangerous creature. And they have another quality to them. Swine are utterly incapable of appreciating the value of pearls. If you were to string a neck of pearls around a pig's neck, it would barely notice that it was there, much less understand how precious they were. And furthermore, they do not enhance the pig's appearance. Not at all. You could put a thousand pearls around a pig's neck and it wouldn't be the least bit more attractive to the other pigs in the pen. It's completely oblivious. If a pig can't eat it, mate with it, fight it or sleep on it, they have no interest in it at all. Kind of like college frat boys. So it's a complete waste of time, right? In the end, your pearls go unnoticed and as the analogy would play out, they're trampled underfoot in the mud because the pig has no idea what it's, what it's there for. So not only did the pig no good, it did you no good. You gave up something holy and precious and it went nowhere. And then finally, Jesus adds that if you and I were foolish enough to ignore common sense and throw our pearls before swine, what we stand to lose is more than just our pearls because he says they're going to tear you to pieces. And in the analogy or in the illustration here, everyone would have understood what he means. If you approach a pack of wild dogs or wild hog and you threaten them, they will come after you and they will strike you. And as I said, they're dangerous animals. They will tear you to pieces. Pigs eat people in the wild if they can. The irony then is you try to give them something that does them no good at your own risk. So to finish our observations, let's go back one more time to the context of Matthew 7. Remember what I said, verses 1 through 5, he's been speaking about judging. That is, don't judge those in the church. And let me change the word judging for you for just a moment because it's going to make understanding this verse that we're in now a lot easier. Instead of saying judging one another, let's define it as deciding for another person how they should be righteous. I'm going to decide for you how you should be righteous. That's in effect what we mean when we say we're judging other people's righteousness. Okay? We can't do that in the church. And that's what Jesus just said. When you judge in this way, you create artificial distinctions in the body that in reality don't actually exist because we're all in the same playing field. All right, that's in the church. Now coming out of that context, Jesus is just turning the coin over and he's saying to us, and also I do not want you to judge the righteousness of unbelievers. Do not judge the righteousness of unbelievers. Here's why. Don't give the dogs and the swine, or in his analogy, he's speaking about the unclean things of the world, or we would just say unbelievers. Do not give them holy things, which are your standards for how to be righteous. The things you've learned from the word of God, from the spirit of God the convictions you now hold because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Our advice in that regard is holy 
Because it's based on our relationship with Christ, our knowledge of His Word, the insight that that has brought us in our walk with Christ, you know, the things we now know to be right and wrong that before we came to faith we were oblivious to. Those are holy things that God has assigned to us because of our relationship with Him through faith. And it's precious, and it's worthy of honor, and it has set us apart for glory. And you have a spirit living in you that is directing your steps of sanctification. He's impressing these truths on your heart. He's leading you to obey. And then you watch the unbelieving world, as we all do. And we see the sin that marks their lives. And we, we all have sin too, but we, we see how they embrace sin. How sin defines them. And at that moment, do you, do you not feel some temptation to judge in the way we mean here? You want to help them. You want to get them out of the problems their sin is creating in their life. And so you want to offer them a solution. And we are tempted at that point to judge them. We just didn't think of it in those terms. What we do at that point is we want to share all the insight God has given us through our faith relationship, skip the faith part, and jump straight to the behavior part with these people and start impressing upon them our experience from the body of Christ, forgetting that the unbelieving world is incapable of appreciating that wisdom, much less abiding by it, if they don't have the Spirit of God living in them. It's backwards thinking. For example, let's say you befriend a couple in your neighborhood who are living together. They're shacked up, out of wedlock, man and woman. Common thing today, right? And you know their lifestyle is not what God wants. That's not the godly kind of relationship God is expecting. And you're a little troubled by their sin. And, and so one day you bring the courage up to tell them that the Bible says they should cease in fornication and they should be married. Oh, could you pass the coffee, please? <laughs> How do you think that goes over? Well, your counsel is holy. Your counsel is a holy thing. It's, it's the truth. And that truth is precious and it's valuable. It's a pure thing in the sight of God, especially in a world of lies. And like pearls, the truth of God's word could make them more lovely if they could only bear it. But they can't. And Jesus says, don't do it. Do not judge unbelievers in that way. Don't offer them holy and precious things that they cannot appreciate And they cannot use. And it's not as though you have no compassion for their situation. And he's not saying you can't offer them advice if they ask. What he's saying is they lack the insight to know that your advice is true. And they lack the capacity in their heart to conform to it apart from the power of God to bring them into conformance with it. It's like a pig donning pearls. They're going to be just as unattractive as ever after you've given them your advice. Now, why is this truth? This is truth because righteousness, friends, comes by faith alone. It comes by faith alone. You cannot skip that step if righteousness is your goal. Hebrews says that it is impossible to please God without faith. You cannot make unbelievers more righteous by judging them and sharing your godly advice. No amount of judging their behavior can bring anyone to righteousness. And here's how bad it is. Even if someone should agree to do what you're counseling them to do, they are still unbelieving. They are still unsaved. They are still destined for eternal judgment. You haven't fixed their real problem one iota. You've put pearls around the neck of a pig, and the pig ain't more attractive for it. 
So if you focus your attention in the relationships you have in the unbelieving world on this concept of correcting an unbeliever's behavior rather than dealing with their heart of faith, that is the lack of faith in their heart, what you're doing is wasting your time. To borrow from Jesus' illustration, I'll change it a little bit for my own liking, you're putting lipstick on a pig. You're dressing it up. You're trying to give someone the appearance of righteousness, like that couple I just talked about. What if they said, oh my goodness, you're so right, and they ceased shacking up and they all went to separate apartments? You'd feel better, wouldn't you? Oh, you could sleep better with yourself, couldn't you? You just helped them become more righteous. Eh. No, you did not. They are just as unrighteous as they were before you gave them your little helpful advice. And that's assuming they even listened, and how often does that really happen? Look, if we're honest about this whole thing, and I know we all love the, and I have a heart to want to do this too, I have to stop myself, because the truth of what we're really doing when we offer these kinds of judgments for other people is we're making ourselves feel better. I think at the heart of it, we feel better. It's back to the problem that we've been in all through this sermon, hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy, and here's why it's hypocritical. Because you've done the easy thing. You've done the easy thing. It's much easier to pretend you're helping someone become pleasing with God than to actually have that hard conversation that says, friend, without Christ, you're going to hell. Maybe in other words. But you can't dance around that point for very long if you're going to get to the truth of the gospel. That has to come up somehow. Otherwise, why do they need a savior? And it is hard to have that conversation with someone who's not of faith. It's hard to come to the point of saying it's Jesus or it's hell. I mean, if you can't get them to that understanding, they're never going to find the gospel anyway. That is to say they have no reason for it. But if you bring them there and they reject it, guess who else they're likely to reject next? The one who's just told them that's the truth. And we don't like that. So maybe we just sort of clean them up a little bit on the outside and and that's an easier sell. That's hypocrisy. Jesus says, if the church makes this mistake, you not only forfeit the chance of truly helping that person, but you put yourself in danger, he says. Now, how is that true? Well, the unbelieving world eventually will turn on a church that is sanctimonious with its advice. And Jesus says, tear us to pieces. I think that's exactly what's happening in the church today. Christians today, in many circles, have become better known in the world for what we're against than what we stand for. Many churches are devoted to changing culture and changing society, forcing unbelievers around us to adopt our morals and yet never mentioning the gospel, which is to say, what good is that? And regrettably, I think Christians actually prefer that work over the true mission of saving souls. I've found it personally easier in churches to recruit believers to join Christian protests or Christian boycotts than to participate in some kind of evangelistic outreach. Don't buy anything from Target because they have this policy on homosexuals. Okay, we're all on board. Let's go out and save some souls in the city park. Oh, you know, that's a bad day for me. Isn't that interesting? We think it's a victory for Jesus when we see a court case or a legislative action against abortion or against homosexual marriage or whatever, as if those changes in behavior equate to putting someone into the kingdom. Now, I'm not saying those things, we shouldn't have advocacy for those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't have cultural or political activism. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's not the mission of the church. And when the church makes that its mission, it gives up the real one. It's putting the cart before the horse. It's judging unbelievers. And it's expecting that somehow they're going to benefit from our convictions. Look, don't be surprised to see sinners sinning. That's why we call them sinners. That's what they do. They sin. 
And trying to fix their sin problem by changing their behavior is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, as they often say. You make things look better for a little while, but everything goes down eventually anyway. It doesn't help. If you really want to help the world, don't treat the symptoms, treat the problem, the disease. And the disease we're talking about here, the cure that we need, is for the sin of the heart, that cure is Jesus in their heart. That's it. That's it. The Bible says everyone born in the world is depraved, unholy, and defiled, and disinterested in the truth, and it doesn't change unless they know Christ. Paul says, here's the nature of the fallen human heart. In Romans 3.10, he says, there is none righteous, not even one, There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside, and together have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. All right, that's your starting point in the world. They don't know God. They don't want to know God. They don't want to do what God says. And they are incapable of finding the truth on their own. That was us before God found us. That's them now. And our goal is to get them to understand the truth of Christ. And then once they have Christ in their heart, guess what starts at that point? They start to get the convictions you have. They start to look at their life differently the way you see it. They don't need your Holy Spirit anymore. they got their own. And they're going to heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man, which is Paul's way of saying an unbeliever, An unbeliever does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Here's what he just said. That knowledge you have because you have the Spirit, the truth you know because of what you've been given by the Spirit, that can only be known by the Spirit. It can only be spiritually appraised. So if you take the knowledge of God and speak it to someone else who does not have the Spirit of God, it's foolishness to them. Only if they too have the Spirit... Will it make sense? And you might ask, well, how does anybody get to know the gospel then? Because they're born again by the Spirit. Newsflash, you didn't save anyone. God does all the saving. We're just a vehicle. He just speaks through us. That's what he's using us for. So even if some people take your advice and do what they are told they're to do, it's only external change. You didn't make them more righteous because their heart's still where it always was. And even worse, when you start preaching behavior change instead of heart change to people, you begin to subtly teach them a gospel of works. Because the Bible says Christ came by faith into your heart, and that by that faith you were cleansed of your unrighteousness and then called to good works in response to your salvation. But by what you're saying to unbelievers when you preach their behavior, you're saying you've got to get cleaned up before you can come to Christ. And that he will then accept you because you've done these good works. Now, you may not say those words, but that's exactly what you're communicating to people when you worry more about what they do than what they believe. Has anybody ever felt that? Ever felt that kind of external pressure to conform? Maybe you grew up in a church before you knew the Lord, and you were told you had to look like everybody else in the room. And, and after a while, you just felt like looking like everyone meant I was like everyone. And that's how you get unbelievers in the church. You know, like the old saying, you can sit in a garage, but that doesn't make you a car. You can sit in here, that doesn't make you a Christian. It's what's in here that makes you a Christian. Judging unbelievers in this sense, getting them to conform their behavior to our standards, that is a waste of time. It does not promote righteousness. And it risks alienating them or confusing them concerning the true gospel. 
And I said, you can see this happening today. There was a recent Barna group study. And in that study, they found that 45% of the unbelieving world, 45% of unbelievers, view Christians as religious extremists. The survey asked them to rate 20 activities. They gave, they gave the, the participants 20 activities, and they said, rate these as they relate to Christianity. And in the list were activities like pressing the government to adopt laws based on morality, or using religion to justify discrimination in the workplace, or things like that. And they said, how do these behaviors relate to Christians? Rate them common or not common among Christians, that kind of thing. And 50% of the unbelieving respondents, 50% of the world we're talking about, 50% of those people out there that don't know Christ, they said that those kinds of activities are typical of extremist Christian behavior. That's how they saw it, extremist. And then there was another Barna study that found that nearly 75% of all Americans classify themselves as Christian. 75% of Americans say they are Christian. But then on closer examination, the Barna group estimates that less than half of that number were actually confessing born-again believers. So somewhere less than 30-something percent instead of 75%. Okay, so here's what you just discovered. A majority of unbelievers think that Christianity's goal is imposing our morals on them. And at the same time, there's a roughly half the people in this country who think they're Christians are not actually Christians. So the world sees Christians as a bunch of sanctimonious, holier-than-thou, meddlesome busybodies. And at the same time, they've not understood the actual gospel that we're supposedly out there delivering. I think those two trends are related. Could it be that we have been so busy as a church universal throwing pearl to swine, that is, judging unbelievers' behaviors by imposing our standards on them, that in the process we've sent them the message that just being good, goes to good people go to heaven, you just have to be good, and in the process we neglected our true mission to actually preach the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. I don't think that's a stretch. I think that's happening in many places. Let me ask you what Jesus did. Did he rail against the Roman empire? Or did he say, render to Caesar what was Caesar's? Did he give lengthy sermons on the evils of prostitution or tax collection? Or did he comfort the outcasts? Did he make social change his agenda? Or did he spend time preaching an eternal kingdom? I mean, we know the answers. His mission is also our mission. Preaching the kingdom of God, it's at hand, and the time is short. Believe while you can. That's not a message to change the world, friends. That's a message to rescue people out of the world. That's our goal. Now, of course, along the way, we'd like to see some injustices addressed. You know, you want to stop depravity and abuse in every form. I'm all for that. Your heart aches, my heart aches when you watch people caught up in sin and all the things it does to them. But let me ask you, what will bring an end to that? What actually brings an end to those things? What will lead women from abortion? What will turn a person from homosexual lust? How do you end child abuse? And how do you end hatred and murder and all other manner of depravity on the earth? What is the real solution? Is it not the gospel? I mean, isn't that the solution? When a heart gets the gospel, the spirit comes to live inside that person, they are instantly righteous before God at that moment. Moreover, they now can receive the wisdom of God. They now understand things they would never have understood. And that solution, that heart change, is only possible through faith in the gospel. That's how it worked for you. That's how it will work for them. 
that's the only way it ever works. Every ounce of effort you have ever spent in judging the behavior of unbelievers and trying to impose your good thinking on them, if you would spend that time preaching the gospel, what do you think might come from that? The church is the only institution in the world that possesses that solution. The only one. We alone have been entrusted with the gospel. So anyone can pursue political change. Anyone can protest unrighteousness. Anyone can judge another person. Only the church has the gospel. You alone have the medicine to cure that disease. But if we are preoccupied with judging the unsaved world, throwing pearls to them and the like, what happens to our mission? And if they learn to despise us for our self-righteousness, where will they turn when their sin leaves them so broken they're actually ready to hear what the answer is? Don't allow the enemy to distract you. Don't allow him to destroy our unity by judging one another. And don't let him distract you by leading you to think that you can substitute some earthly crusade for social change for what is the actual mission of the church which is recruiting citizens out of this world to be ready for the next. And to be fair, he didn't ask us to turn a blind eye to sin. He wasn't saying cultural activism is wrong and so on. He's saying judging the unbelieving world's sin prior to them knowing the gospel is putting the cart before the horse. First you save them, then you disciple them. That's the order. So in verses 1 through 7, here's what we learn. We neither judge the believer, nor do we judge the unbeliever. The body of Christ is equally righteous by faith. We're unified by that faith. Yet we also all have sin. None of us are worse than the other in that regard. So we all stand before God in the same place, equally righteous by faith, equally do the penalty of our sin, yet that fell on Christ. Hallelujah. Now turn the coin over. We have an unbelieving world out there, incapable of benefiting from what you know about righteousness, unless they come to faith. So judging their behavior in the meantime, that's pointless. It just serves to destroy whatever opportunity you might have had to actually present the gospel to them. So don't concern yourself with your behavior, their behaviors, as hard as it is. You know, one of the quiet ways this comes up often in conversation, I find, is people who say, well, should I attend a homosexual's wedding? That's a tough one. I guess it depends on whether you want to be a saving influence to them or not. I guess it depends on what kind of relationship you're building. I guess it depends on whether you see an opening for the gospel. I guess it depends on whether you care more for their heart or their behavior. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you we ought to think carefully about every single one of those decisions because why are you here? It's to take those people, the sinners that we don't like, and bring them into the kingdom, which is what someone did for us. And if anyone's sin on earth is so great they don't deserve the gospel, well, why are you here? Why am I here? Preach the word of God, remembering that it is the kindness of God that brings people to repentance. And when they place their trust in Jesus Christ, then they will have obtained everything pertaining to life and godliness, your advice notwithstanding. That's the heart we want in a church that's truly seeking to bring people into the kingdom, isn't it? They can't be bad enough to keep us away from them. Because if that were the case, the enemy knows how to make that happen. We don't want to give him that tool. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, please forgive us when our judgment has 
impeded our usefulness to you in the mission you've given us. When we were preoccupied with the faults of others, forgetting, Father, all that you have forgiven of us. Help us navigate the difficult questions that will come, Father, when we try to understand where to go, how to relate to the unbelieving world, what events we could participate in, which ones we shouldn't, how we are to move around a world that is so desperately evil. Not every answer will be clear to us, Father. We know you can direct our steps. But more than anything, Father, give us a heart that seeks for the lost and does not let their sinfulness become an obstacle to bringing mercy. Father, thank you. You never let that be our our barrier. You never said to us, Father, you couldn't save us. We were just too bad. We don't want to say that to other people. Father, we know that you save. We don't. We know that you, when all is said and done, will have every soul with you that you intended. We just want to be useful to you, Father, in that work. And we want to have a heart that seeks, not judges. If we've judged one another in here, Father, forgive us. Help us do better. And if we've had a tendency to look down at those in the world in their sin, counting them unworthy to hear the gospel, Father, forgive us. And help us to share the next time. Let us be a church that's known for that, Father. That's why we're here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.